Hey, everybody, and welcome to Learning from Smart People. I am your host, Rob Oliver. And my smart person today is not only a smart person, but he has quite possibly the best first name ever given to a, a man of any variety. Uh, his name is Rob Kessler, and he is the inventor of the million dollar collar. It's been in business since 2016. He is located down in Georgia, and he joins us today. Rob, welcome to the podcast, man. Two Robs make it right. Let's do it. Absolutely. So tell me a little <laughs> bit about like your backstory. How did you come up with this idea and like where, what got you to where you are today? Well, you know, growing up to me, the dress shirt was always like kind of the go-to item for when I wanted to look good, whether I was going to tuck it or untuck it, but I never liked wearing a tie. So when I got married in Jamaica in 2013 on the beach with my toes in the sand and my pants rolled up, I definitely wasn't wearing a tie, but my brand new freshly pressed express one MX dress shirt had totally collapsed within 30 minutes of putting it on. And before I could even say I do to my bride, my shirt was just a crumbled mess. And I remember coming home and looking at all of our wedding photos and thinking, God, my shirt just looked terrible. There's gotta be something that can be done. And doing a lot of internet searching, I found that everything was focused around the collar itself. But to me, the problem was the front of the shirt where the buttons and the holes are. That part's called the placket. And so I started with the idea of a collar stay. I cut open a cardboard box. I cut open a shirt. I shoved it down the front. I showed my new bride and she instantly understood what I've been complaining about all those years. Wow. Uh, so what was the journey like to go from, I've got this idea and to it becoming a, becoming an actual product to becoming like patented or whatever you're trademarked or whatever you're doing with that to becoming a business. It, it, there's gotta be a journey there, I'm assuming. So we started, like I said, we did a bunch of digging around on the internet, trying to find, you know, we did patent search office and, and looked as much as we could, but you can only go so far. So uh, called a buddy of mine from high school, who's an attorney. He said, call this guy, he's the best patent attorney in the city. So I knew that if I was going to surround my life around this product that I wanted to make sure I was fully protected. So, I mean, we're talking $560 an hour. Andy gave himself a $20 an hour raise while we were doing it. So you start cutting checks when you get into the patent process and they, they, the, it starts with three zeros and then they start going up from there. So um, the first thing is to do is a patent search. They do a deep dive to find out if there's anything else like it. There wasn't. So then we just started progressing. I'm cutting open shirts. I'm, using different templates. I lay it out on a shirt and see if I could stick it in there. And, you know, I was actually going to make my own shirt. So we did a Kickstarter in 2014, um, which did not get funded, but the unequivocal feedback from people was, and, and people who were willing to give me money, not just, you know, your buddy down the street who thinks it's a great idea and has nothing positive to, or, or insightful to give. They said, why are you trying to compete with all the brands? Why not license the technology? And why can't I upgrade the shirts I already own? So we went from going to make our own shirts to scrapping that whole thing and pivoting before we even launched to an aftermarket piece that just gets sewn into any shirt that's on the market. We sold almost a half a million units to 125 countries to 41,000 people, and it fits in every single shirt. Okay, so that's really interesting. What you're what you're able to do is take the feedback that you're getting from consumers and adapt 
what you're doing to match their needs. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Because I, I love it. it. It's a, it's an idea where solicit feedback. So it starts, it starts with an idea. It, you research your idea, but then you kind of run it up the flagpole to see what flies in the breeze. Can, can you talk a little bit more about how you were able to solicit that feedback and like, was it all through the Kickstarter? Were there any other ways that you were able to, to get that information? Uh, apart from, yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, apart from talking to your mom, who I'm assuming thinks this is a great idea. It's the best idea that we've ever heard of. Yeah. She, you know, I would talk to friends cause I only had so many dress shirts and one of the parts, the hardest part of this process was, you know, washing and drying is, is nothing, you know, it's 130 degrees in a dryer and irons 200 degrees. But when you go to the, the dry cleaner, they use such extreme heat to make the process go quickly. They flash press your shirt at 450 degrees. So any plastic on the market, any even high heat plastic will melt at 300 or so. So I ran out of shirts quickly, melting plastic to all these shirts that I was sending to the dry cleaner doing testing. So, you know, I would get a, I'd talk to friends, but hell yeah, I got an old shirt here. You can try it on here. And then I, you know, and I was working on different lengths. I was, I was in my head about, I want it shorter so I can get more units. So my cost is less, but it really kind of left just laid out and looking like Travolta in the seventies. So I ended up going longer and longer. And so with the feedback from my friends, we did go to that Kickstarter. And like I said, I, unlike friends who are want to be supportive and not really give you that critical feedback, somebody who's willing to give you money. I mean, we were selling 60 or $70 shirts. You could buy two or three or four. And, and so there's people that had laid down four or 500 bucks, potentially, if we would have reached our goal. And when we didn't, we said, hey, you know, what do you think? And that was the feedback. And we just felt like that was the most valuable because sight unseen, they were willing to give us money. And so I just appreciated that feedback better. Okay. So I'd like to get into, you know, your advice for people who have an idea. But before I do that, I, I want your comment on this. You're getting, you're getting feedback that doesn't line up exactly with what your vision was or what your plan was. How can, how do you walk the line between being upset and saying, they just don't see what I'm working on and taking the feedback and saying, okay, I can take this and I can mold my vision and I can change to match it. So I can change to do what I'm hearing um, and move forward that way. So walking the line between feeling criticized and um, just feeling the opportunity to learn. Um, I'd like to say that my ego isn't so big that I get in my own way. I definitely do at times, especially when I'm fighting with my wife. But um, at the end of the day, to, I had other businesses leading up to this that I fought and said, no, 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 this is the way I want it. And this is the way I want it. But people kept fighting me to say, this is what I want. And when I accepted what those people wanted, it made business much easier. And so I've always been a guy to try to find the path of least resistance. And when I come across a problem, whether it's somebody not seeing my vision or, you know, a, a car accident, it, I never, ever, ever focus on the problem. I always focus on the solution. And so this thing happened that I take in that feedback and then figure out how to move forward. Um, and, and so that's where my focus has always been. And if, if it's coming from the customer and, and that's, I'm just going to absorb and say, well, okay, well, how do I, how do I 
seat that. And what it turned out to be great was $20,000 worth of inventory of this fits in a shoebox versus $20,000 worth of inventory of dress shirts will take up my, uh, you know, a bedroom in my house or more. Sure. So it was like, well, I can handle that. Let's just, we'll just do these. You know, we really thought we were going to go down this licensing path. That was another thing. I heard a no a thousand times. We've met with every major brand and said, dude, I think your customer's going to love this. As statistics show, almost 90% of men, 90% of the time, wear a dress shirt without a tie. And these big brands are coming out with stretch collars as if somebody's going to button all the way up and wear a tie. And that's their like great advancement. I'm like, you guys are 10, 15 years behind the, the ball. So hearing no from those guys, now we're actually getting back in and making our own shirts again because we've had the confidence of sold a half a million units worldwide and said, look, if these guys still aren't going to do it, fine. We're going to make our own shirt. We're going to make it better and we're going to sell a lot more of them. So we're just doing our own thing, you know, and, and finding what doesn't work and then, you know, pivot in trying to find something that does. Okay. So what advice would you have for somebody who sees a problem and thinks that they might have a solution that is possibly commercially viable? Uh, number one, do tons of research on the internet to see if that product is already out there. Uh, even if it is, that that's fine. You may be able to improve. I mean, there's other people that try to claim that they can do what my product can do, but they can't. Um, and so start there. If you think it's viable, you know, you spend the 1500 or 2000 bucks and have a patent search done, because if you get out there in the market and you start going after it and then it's, you don't protect it with a patent. Then to me, you, you know, you're leaving yourself open to be knocked off. And, and most people don't understand that the patent is actually becomes a new revenue source. I mean, I've spent six figures on my patent and if somebody tries to infringe on it, that should pay itself off with suing them and stopping them and cease and desist. And, and the fact that somebody's trying to knock you off just means that you're onto the right thing. So stick with that and then use that and leverage it to move forward. Okay. I, can you talk about the obstacles that may have been in your way and how did you kind of, how did you deal with those and have the persistence to keep going in the face of, you know, when your Kickstarter doesn't work or um, any other obstacles that you had? I mean, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you're going to, you're going to quit because you don't care. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm super passionate about making this a viable, huge, massive company because it's my idea. I mean, I it couldn't be any closer to my heart than it is. And so, you know, having that passion, that deep rooted, you know, need to see it through. I mean, I'm a complete bullhead when it comes to stuff. I mean, right behind my computer is a 5,000 piece puzzle of New York skyline. And I've got a 13,000 to 13,000 piece puzzles that I've also, that I've got to work on. And all it is, is just trying a piece and trying a piece, and trying a piece until it fits. And so I can get very stubborn when it comes to that. And don't get me wrong. There's days that I sit on the couch and I look at my wife and I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Like it is, this is a disaster. It's not going where it needs, but fortunately she's usually on a high on that time. Things are going great for her. And then there's days when she's feeling like crap and I'm the one that's having like, you know, killer meetings and things are going good. So it, to have that support, you know, not only from my parents, but you know, from her is, is invaluable. Yeah. It, it's, it's really important to have that, have the person that you can bounce things off of or that, you know, when you're, when you're down, they'll pull you up and you offer the same thing 
to them. So you're talking about developing passion. Let me, let me ask this then. You had business experience before you did this. You had other businesses that you were involved in. What about people who are out there who don't, they've, they've been working for someone else their whole life, but they've got the idea. Can you give some advice for folks who think like, I'd like to do something like this, but I'm not sure I have the business experience. You know, I've heard thousands of stories of people with no business experience that built a massive company. And to me, if you're gonna, if you feel overwhelmed in certain areas, you can find a partner. I mean, my partner is the opposite of me and we butt heads all the time because we don't see eye to eye, but he's very graphically inclined. He's very, you know, he got us all the meetings with all those huge companies. He is what I'm not. And so if you're going to go into this, you know, and maybe a partner is the right thing to do. There's a great book called Rocket Fuel that talks about the innovator and then the implementer. And he uses Roy Disney and Walt Disney as the example. Walt would be in jail for cutting, you know, counterfeit bad checks because he just wanted to keep going and keep. And Roy was actually the one that made sure that there was enough money coming in to build what Walt wanted. So, but if you don't want to do that, there's millions of resources. I listen to business books all the time. There's business podcasts. There's courses that you can do. There's mastermind stuff. There's tons of resources out there to just learn. So finish that day job and then put in another five or eight hours a night and really grind in. If you're passionate about it, you have no shortage of energy trying to find the time to make it happen. Talk to me about this. You've got this unique product and is it, is the unique product enough to set you apart or is there, is there an, another element of making sure that you are being responsive to customers that has to go with being unique in the marketplace? I am kind of a freak when it comes to customer service. So I always try to turn the table and look at my company from a customer's perspective and how can I make it easy for them? So we started out with our basically what we call an aftermarket kit where you buy this from us, you go to the dry cleaner tailor, have these sewn in. And then once it's in, it lasts like the shirt. Then we said, well, let's go work with these dry cleaners because they already have the customers. So we went to dry cleaning trade shows and met with those guys, built out all the sales materials, all the point of sale stuff, did all that for them. That didn't really work out so great. So then people were like, well, why can't I do a mail-in service? I'm like, because there's 40,000 dry cleaners and 100,000 tailors in North America. There's probably one a stone's throw from your house. And it makes no sense to me that you want me to ship you a bag so you can ship me the shirt so I can install them and ship them back to you. But we do. And we've done hundreds of VIP, what I call our VIP concierge mail-in service. And so, fine, if you want that, send it to me. Uh, then we got a account with wholesale accounts where I buy brands that you already know, Tommy Hilfiger, Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, Michael Kors, Van Heusen. You buy those shirts in tons of colors and sizes, upgrade them, and then sell you the shirt that you already know with it already installed. So you don't have to go through that, that process. Once you get a shirt and you realize the confidence and how great it looks to be in a shirt with a million dollar collar, then you'll say, okay, I'll buy a 10 pack and I'll go do 10 of my shirts. It's worth it to me now because I know what the benefit is. So I always try to look from a customer's perspective. Yeah, I think that that's a recurring theme that you've made very clear. When you're in the process of developing the product, it's getting customer feedback, getting potential customer feedback. And now that you have the product, it's about 
providing a customer experience that's top notch. And, you know, listen, I've got a, I've got another podcast that's about healthcare and it's all about patient and family centered care. And what you're doing is customer centric based business. Is that fairly accurate in describing what you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, one of the jobs I had along the way was for my dad. He had jewelry stores and the way he structured his hierarchy was customer first team, second company, third. And if you kept things in that order, you blow people's minds and and they spend money with you. It's free advertising because if you can go so much far above and beyond, they're going to talk about you and talk about the amazing. I just had a guy the other day, he bought a shirt. He's like, dude, Apparently I've gained some weight, so I need to exchange a shirt. And I said, okay, I'll ship you the new shirt with a bag. Send me that one back. Did it, showed up, threw it in a bag, sent it. He goes, dude, this is the most amazing customer service I've ever had. You're incredible. He's going to tell everybody he knows. So, you know, not only he's got a shirt that looks great, but now he loves it because it fits and it was super easy. It was hassle-free, you know, and now hopefully I get five more customers from, you know, the Arizona area. So that's all you can do. Yeah, and I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense in that, I mean, first of all, most companies will tell you, you ship back to us first and then we'll, we'll ship to you. But you're, you're telling the customer, I trust you. We have, we have a relationship and the relationship is not strictly about me protecting, you know, my, my back, covering my backside, so to speak. It's about me getting you what you need. And I, I trust you and I value you enough as a customer to expect that you're going to be right with me as well. Is that, it's a, it's a unique understanding. How long did it take you to develop that understanding and kind of um, not be so worried about making sure that everybody, that you got every dollar and every cent accounted for when it comes to your relationship with your customers in that way? You know, when it comes to me, to me, I think integrity is a, is a huge part of life. And, you know, I'm a very in, integral person. And so I assume that everybody else is. But, you know, it's the hardest when you're starting out and you have no income and no revenue and you try to do something to stand behind your product. One of the things that killed me in the beginning was I sold on Amazon right away. Well, you know, I sold for this price and then Amazon takes their cut. Well, when they return, when somebody returns something on Amazon, Amazon doesn't return that whole fee to you. So now if somebody's returned, I've got the product back, it's back in stock, I can go resell, but I'm already out two or three bucks on that piece because of the return process. And then Amazon charges a $2.12 customer return fee on top of all of it. So it's like you want to all that, but it's hard when the cash flow is funky but if you just look at six of my guns, I know I've got a great product. And now I'm on 17 different places for Amazon. I'm on every one FBA all over the world. We sell, I don't know, 50 or a hundred packs a day, depending on where you're at. And so it all works out. But if you have good integrity and you put the customer first, then it's all going to work out in the end. And part of that integrity is putting out a super quality product that you shouldn't have to worry about. I mean, there's nothing that's right for everybody. And I get returns for stupid reasons, but you know, people are like, I didn't know it was sewn in. I mean, literally the title says sewn in black and stay. It, it can't be any more clear, but you still get them. And so just do what's right for the customer and in the long run. And if you lose money, that's what your advertising line item expense is for. So call that advertising, 
even the guy that said, I hate your product. If you're nice and you say, you know what, take it back. Here's your money. Thanks so much for giving us a shot. You know, maybe he'll tell somebody else, like watching him flop around with his, his collar. I tried this product. I didn't like it, but maybe it's for you. Right. Okay. So talk to me then about, you have a unique product. It's something that people aren't familiar with. It's a problem that, as you've said, men, men are aware of, but they're not aware that it's a solution that's out there. We've talked a little bit about word of mouth as being a primary source of advertising. Uh, what other ways are there for you to get the word out about what you're doing? So when we launched, um, fashion YouTube influencers were actually pretty good. So we knew that the product is very demonstrable. I mean, it's hard to like talk to somebody over the phone and explain it, but my business card is this same picture. It's the before and after. And it's like, dude, don't you hate when your shirt looks like that? Here's what my product does. Boom. It's as easy as possible. So we said, let's go to guys. We'll send them the product and they'll basically do a review of it. And we knew going out that the installation process is an extra step and it sucks. I get it. And so we've tried to overcome that as much as possible, but at the end of the day, it's worth it. And it's the least expensive way to add this to your shirt because all the tailor does is open a couple stitches, slide in and sew it back together in the exact same spot. And if they do it right, you won't even know that they were there. And so it's, they even tell us it's like only a button is easier to replace as far as tailoring things go. So it's insanely easy to do, but we went with these fashion YouTube because it was, it's such a demonstrable product. You could see the before and after and they did a great job. We've had, 10 million views on YouTube between all these different guys. And um, that's what got us out there right away. Okay. Um, and just to get kind of do a little bit of backstory on this, when you decided, okay, this is what the product is and you've made that. Can you talk about the sourcing for that? You know, is this something that, because there's a lot of people out there, they've got an idea. It's for a product. Um, they, maybe they have created a, you know, a model or a mock-up, but then what's the next step as far as, you know, being able to source that product in a way that makes it, you know, makes it so that you can buy the, buy the prototypes or buy the actual product and sell it at a price where there's enough in it to, to make it profitable as a business. So, you know, I went through the process and I just, I knew it had to be a plastics based item because I wanted it to be lightweight, similar to a collar stick. So, you know, I started going online and finding plastics companies and researching and ordering samples from all their stuff and then testing and samples and testing. And I talked about the product. I mean, a lot of people will tell you, oh my God, sign an NDA and do this, do that. NDAs are, are worthless. They're worth less than the papers they're written on. So be able to talk about it. I mean, don't be dumb about it. I mean, once you file for a patent, you're protected because it's first to, first to file is, is now the process. Okay. So once you've started that process, don't worry about it. Go talk to people. And I just happened to be talking to somebody and a buddy of mine from high school worked with a plastics company that was local, an international plastics company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, hooked me up with them. They helped me figure out what the final material was going to be. They die cut. They do the whole process, but there's companies that do prototyping. There's companies, you know, that, that can help you get a process to where you need. There's 3d CAD companies, there's prototyping companies, and they can help you get into where the manufacturing is, but just put yourself out there, be cautious, um, but be willing to talk about it. I mean, there's, there's new stuff, but there's really not a whole lot of new things. It's a lot, usually a new take on something old. Okay. Uh, last question for you. When you're 
when you're talking about doing something like this, bringing a new product to market, uh, is this something that is self-funded? Is this something that you're getting investors that you're like, um, can you, what are the, the financial kind of inhibitors to doing this and kind of how do you work through the, the process of solving that, that issue? Cause I mean, quite frankly, that that's one of the biggest obstacles to starting something new. You know, to me, it's hard to get investors on a concept. Um, you know, they're never going to value it, what you think it's worth. And then now you always have a partner forever, whether you like it or not. So I've bootstrapped everything that I've done. Um, I think it makes you grind harder. Uh, I don't like to have a ton of money in the bank because I'm going to be an idiot and I'll take my wife on vacation and we'll go buy a car and we'll do dumb stuff with it. But if I've got just enough money to survive, it keeps me pushing to, okay, what's next? How do I get this? Let's open that door. Let's have this call. Let's make that. Who can I talk to today? that's going to help me get closer to where I want to be. And so I like the bootstrapping method, um, million dollar collar and go tieless. Uh, my dad came to me after I told him what the concept was and says, Hey, I want to invest in you, which is amazing because we didn't have the greatest relationship growing up. So for him to just out of the blue call and say, Hey, and it, it wasn't like it was a ton of money. It was 20 grand to help start the business, which the patent ate up pretty quickly. So um, I don't like having too much money because, when you have too much money sit around, you look at all these tech startups in California and these idiots have these crazy, you know, office spaces and all this stuff. And it's just so overblown and they're burning through cash so fast because they think something's going to work. If you don't have the cash to burn, you have to fit, get creative and figure a way out. And I just like guerrilla marketing and just grinding it out. Yeah. Um, when you have too much cash, you get comfortable um, mm -hmm. and comfortable and complacent are not um, fire in your belly going out and doing whatever it needs to be to get done. Listen, Rob, thank you so much for sharing. If people want to learn more about your product, um, where can they find you? So we're on uh, milliondollarcollar.com is the main website. Um, and we have that Instagram and Facebook is, is also million dollar collar. So uh, we're out there. I try to post on Instagram uh, regularly, but it, it's tough with all the stuff I have going on. So. No worries at all. Well, Rob Kessler, thank you so much. It is now time for three questions to establish your humanity. Are you ready for these, my friend? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, if you got to be a superhero and you could pick your own superpower, what would be the Rob Kessler superpower of choice? You know, honestly, I wish my back didn't hurt just standing here doing this interview while I'm dying. So if I could go through life without back pain, I would be, uh, I'd be a pretty happy guy. <laughs> there you go. So, um, you know, you would be the iron spine or something. Um, I guess we'll go with, yeah. <laughs> no, no worries. Simple, simple pleasures, simple pleasures. Yep. Um, if you could share a meal with any one individual living or dead, who would you like to sit down and have a, a dinner with? So what my dream has been for the last several years, uh, my dad was about ready to hand away his company because he was so frustrated. He wasn't growing at all. And out of desperation, he took the last two grand he had and went to see Tony Robbins. And he got so inspired from seeing Tony Robbins that he went from the smallest jeweler in southeastern Wisconsin or all of Wisconsin to the third largest independent jeweler in the country in a matter of 20 years with seven stores and $35 million a year in revenue. 
I would love, it would mean more to me to take my dad and put him at a table with Tony and let them have a conversation about how he changed our lives because it, it all stemmed from that. Well, that is such a different answer than what I was expecting. It's usually I would like to sit down with somebody and, and talk to them and learn from them. But your interest in being able to share and say, I want to tell them how valuable they are to me and my family. Uh, very, very unique. All right, last question for you. What is your favorite fast food chain? in and out Burger. I mean, I, it's, it's kind of fast food, but yeah, I mean, I lived in California for five years. I started to eat a little bit too much. So now I'm back in the, when I go to California, I get to have in and out Burger, but um, yeah, I love it. In okay. All right, so when you go back to California and you're going through the drive-through at in it, in and out have a drive-through i'm assuming uh, oh yeah it's always a mile long okay um <laughs> when you pull up to the window and they say welcome to in and out how can i help you what is the rob kessler a standard order that says i've missed this it's the i think it's number one it's double double with fries and, and the coke it's just really simple no onions but okay. uh yeah it's du double double fries and the coke Fantastic. Rob, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you sharing. I appreciate you answering the questions. Uh, you are indeed a smart person. To all of my listeners, thank you for being here. And I will remind you that when you stop learning, you stop living. Have a great day, everybody.